You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to Offscript. This is uh, American Theater's about monthly now chat uh, on Facebook about what we've been up to and uh, what's going on in the field. Uh, I'm Rob Weiner-Kent. I'm the editor-in-chief of American Theater, and I'm here with... Uh, I'm Gerald Raymond Pierce, uh, associate editor for American Theater. And uh, we're excited today. We have our guest is Travis Tate, playwright, whose new play, Queen of the Night, uh, is is going up soon at the Dorset Theater Festival in Vermont. We look forward to talking to them in about 10 minutes. I'm coming to you this week, uh, this is our July edition, from a friend's place in Cape Cod. Uh, I'm essentially the, the, the home of uh, the Wampanoag people. I'm usually coming from Queens, which is the home of the Maspeth and Rockaway. And JR, you're still in Chicago as your background shows. Chicago, which is the land of the Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria. That's cool. I should clarify my background. This is not where I actually, this is the background is the Dorset Theater Festival. In my usual practice, I like to put up a background of who we're talking to, where, where they are. And Travis is there actually in Vermont and I'm in Yarmouth. So uh, not too far, but uh, it's the summer. Summer's doesn't slow down in the theater as we're finding out, especially in the middle of a, of a or at the, as we near the end or not quite the end of a, of a pandemic lockdown. With, uh, I was supposed to see uh, Mary Wise of Windsor two nights ago at the uh, at the public, and it was initially counsel, uh, postponed because uh, Jacob Ming Trent, who plays Falstaff, got had an injury. You know, they had to understudy; they didn't want the press to to see, not see the their main Falstaff. And now they they've canceled or postponed a few performances because someone tested positive for COVID. So we'll be <laughs> we're preparing for a who knows what this. Uh, this, this late summer and fall. Um, but it's also been a month since we've been on, done one of these. So we have a, a lot of things to touch on really briefly. Uh, uh, you can look forward to coverage of, of what's going on with equity, uh, <laughs> as well as a lot of other workplace uh, industry news. But so far we've, we've only just announced the equity open access program uh, with a, obligatory news release, there's more coming on that. But, uh, you know, I don't even know where to start here. JR, you wrote about two really exciting uh, multimedia or uh, efforts at the two big theaters that involved the two big theaters in Chicago. Tell us about those. Yeah, uh, I saw a production called The Map of Now, uh, like three weeks ago, I think it was now, three or four weeks ago now. But uh, it was exciting because uh, it was basically a video game. You got to move a little kind of Pokemon-esque character around a little map. Uh, it felt like you were in a video game, but as soon as you got close to somebody else's little avatar, uh, their their little chat window would pop up or their little uh, camera view would pop up. So the way you and I are talking, Rob, right now, I would be able to talk to somebody casually in the virtual lobby of Steppenwolf, who, who, which was a part of that. 
So they, they virtually created the Steppenwolf lobby and theater space. And you could go inside and press play on a show. You could watch it with friends. It was really cool. It's a nice uh, departure from, from the typical digital realm, uh, which also the production I saw, like The Goodman, uh, which was I Hate It Here by Ike Holter, was one of the one of the more cool ways of doing digital theater that I have seen so far because uh, it was live television. They had an Emmy-winning television producer and Christiana Tai come in and she's calling the show live. Every every camera is live with camera folks working the cameras and uh, yeah, it felt very it felt very similar to the energy that you would get in a theater. And I, I was lucky enough for, for that report to be able to sit in the theater during a rehearsal and a run through and get that energy and then watch it again once it actually opened. And the energy is the same. And Ike's script is hilarious and poignant. It's uh, all about the stressors of 2020, uh, mm-hmm. which kind of culminate in that, that pretty universal feeling of sometimes just wanting to scream, I hate it here because this uh, past year has been rough for many, many people. And I think Ike did a fantastic job capturing that sentiment. Yeah, yeah it sounded it sounded great. I wasn't able to catch it, but, uh, and it was live. You can't catch it. It's not still, still living there, right? Um, right. So s- speaking of things you can catch that are, that are uh, in our ongoing Sondheim coverage, uh, I did uh, <laughs> right before our last, uh, off script, I talked to, to uh, Michael McElroy, uh, who released Broadway Inspirational Voices, and uh, we talked a little bit about uh, what what that troupe does with musical theater songs, including Sondheim. And right after that, I uh, had a piece on Ellery Ward's uh, Sondheim record, where she does a finger-picking folk stylings. It's not for everyone's taste. I think some people, it's anathema to them, but uh, as a Joni, Joni Mitchell had myself, and to hear someone kind of take those songs apart that way. So I got to nerd out with her about music theory and, uh, and Sondheim, which is, a, they go well together. Uh, I also talked to uh, an old friend of mine I grew up with, uh, Cinco Paul, who's one of the writers of Schmigadoon, the new Apple TV Plus series. Also, it's dividing people. Not everyone loves that. Um, I happen to love it, partly because it's such a big expression of my, my friend Cinco's sensibility, which is very, schmaltzy and corny with a little sardonic wit. Uh, in any case, that was fun to talk to him about how that production came together. He wrote the songs for it, which is not, showrunners don't typically write the songs for the, even for musical shows. I think that show Central Park has a lot of, you know, ringers, they bring in some named people. Um, and then we just we just published a, a review of a new book by James Lapine, which I've taken with me on my travels called Putting Together. I think that makes three books now with lyric titles from Sunday in the Park with George <laughs> by its authors. Look, I made a hat, finishing the hat and now putting it together. But it's James Lapine's oral history memoir of writing that show. And I think, you know, we have a little review of that book. I'm really excited to read it because I think there's a default assumption among Sondheim fans that he's like the author of everything. And all the songs are about him and his creative struggles. And there's certainly a lot of him in that show, but it was written by James Lapine. And I feel like there's a lot about his his life as well, children and art and balancing home and 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 art. So in any case, I can't wait to read it myself. Um, I'm going to race through some of these other things we've we've done. We also had uh, 
an ongoing series of the Tapestry of Black American Theater. Uh, the series kicked off with a look back at the Negro Ensemble Company. And the re most recent one was about two theaters I didn't know enough about, the Southern Free Theater, which was integrally, integrally involved with the civil rights movement uh, and was on the ground with them. John O'Neill was one of the leaders of that, but there were other, other folks whose stories were told in that story, as well as the New Heritage Theater Group, which was a New York-based company that came not out of the period of the Harlem Renaissance, but a lot of the folks were influenced by that, started this company, which is still in existence today. Um, and I didn't know that their story either. So that was fascinating. We also had a Q&A about the long, illustrious career of Woody King Jr., which Marshall Jones, another Black artistic director, uh, did. And it was a... Uh, I mean, there's just, there's great lore there, but also just great wisdom about, about the field. He, of course, ran the New Federal Theater, another major black theater, which is still in existence. Um, and he just stepped down, which is why, why we didn't. It wasn't obituary, it was a, a commemoration of his career, which is still continuing. Um, let's see, real quick. Uh, we also did uh, a Q&A with Antoinette Wandu, whose play Passover will be starting previews in like a week. Uh, week, week and a half, two weeks on Broadway, if all goes as planned. Um, that's a play which you, you just wrote about recently, JR, you saw in Philadelphia in its original draft version, or at least something close to the original draft, and she's changing the ending, and, and we're going to see what that looks like. Um, I, was, I was intrigued to, to learn that Bill Irwin is sort of their... Uh, uh, tramp consultant, basically on, <laughs> and I saw on Facebook. I don't know if you saw this, Jr. There was a photo of Namir Smallwood and John Michael Hill uh, with, oh gosh, uh, Ebert, Gabriel Ebert, who plays those are the main cast, dressed up as tramps, and they, uh, Antoine said they had just done a reading in the rehearsal room of Waiting for Gatto, with Bill Irwin playing Lucky, um, and it just, you know, it's just, it's just as an exercise because her. Her play is, you know, references that. It just was, it was great to see. If you if you want to, if you're interested in that play and you're an Antoinette Wandu fan, you can follow her on Instagram and Facebook. She's posting from within the rehearsal room everything that's going on with that production. It's fascinating. Um, I'm looking forward to that a lot. I think that's most of what we had. A couple from across the pond. Uh, Avi Wong, Wong Davies, wonderful critic for. Uh, stage and Exeunt uh, wrote, gave us a sort of London update. We have those every now and again. I was interested to hear what, what they're doing on stage there, part of what they're doing, a lot of what they're doing. Uh, what, one thing that Donmar Warehouse is doing is a sort of celebrity casting of constellations, but different sort of celebrity pairs going into that two-hander show. A little bit like Love Letters might be done here, but I, no shade on that. She sort of you know, sees the, the logic of that. Um, and just they're easing back into the theater there. She feels, she, she said it feels a little tentative. And I know that some West End shows have actually shut down again since, since we wrote that piece. Um, and another piece from across the pond, Ben Barnes, an Irish director, gave us a, a version of a piece he wrote for the STC Journal, which I think it's just nice to hear nice words about the American Regional Theater right now. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. It's been locked down for a year. His take is, as a, as a director who's worked all over the world, uh, in English language theater mostly, but around the world, the quality of, of acting, craftsmanship, and ensemble in the, in the U.S. is really worth, worth celebrating. So he's, he's, had a, he's talked specifically about the resident ensemble players, which is in Delaware, 
affiliated with the University of Delaware, but he was saying it's been a lot of companies worked with. So that's a that's a wonderful tribute. It's nice to nice to hear that uh, at a time when sometimes it feels like the theater uh, American theater is tearing itself apart from inside. You know, just again with good reason. There's a lot to critique. There's a lot to to reassess. Um, but uh, it's also worth celebrating some things. Uh, along those lines, we also Calendra Smith wrote a piece about some new some companies that are really, you know, taking new strides as we, they head toward reopening. The Detroit Public Theater, Savannah Rep, something called Sour Grapes Productions, which I don't know. They're based in Brooklyn. They do live events. And the Spokane Shakespeare Society. She really sort of looked around the country at different theaters of different sizes that were doing interesting things. Um, Jared, was there anything else I, anything I missed here? Uh, speaking of, of coverage, the, the, yeah. the industry trying to take strides to being better. I uh, just want to bring up the piece written by Yasmin uh, Zachariah Mikhail. Uh, That's right. Because they, they wrote a, a great piece about uh, talking to a lot of Chicago artists uh, who have felt, well, overworked and underpaid, as, as the headline will state. Uh, but a lot of freelancers in the Chicago scene trying to fight for more equitable situations and more equitable um, theater, both in the equity space and especially in the non-equity space, um, which will be interesting to see uh, if that changes at all with the new equity news, but we'll see. Uh, and then I also wanted to bring up Keisha Jarrett's uh, piece where she talked to a lot of her colleagues about a, about leading theaters as, um, as people of color coming into new positions and being asked to lead during this time and the kind of difficulties she's faced uh, as part of her job as a managing director, feeling the pushback from, frankly, a lot of uh, white patrons who, who haven't been or aren't respecting her place as leader, as a leader of uh, her company. So she talked to a lot of people from around the, around the country to kind of voice what they're feeling these days as they try to continue to push forward as leaders in this industry that has been very slow to have many and then accept those who are able to become leaders uh, of regional theaters. So I definitely recommend that one as well. Yeah, that piece had some amazing quotes from Nataki Garrett and Hannah Sharif, who were both artistic directors at historically or predominantly white theaters and uh, talking to them about their experience there, the difficulties in leading not just white staff, but even staff of color who are not used to having a woman of color lead, lead them and the challenges of that. So that was a, a timely, important piece. Um, well, not to make too rough a segue, but uh, we want to celebrate uh, the theater that is, is happening. And one of the plays we're interested in this summer uh, is outdoor at the Dorset Theater Festival. They're coming back. Uh, I believe it, the performances might already have started, but we'd like to talk to Travis Tate about his play, sorry, their play, um, Queen of the Night. Travis, welcoming you to Off Script. And uh, just tell us a little bit about, is, is Queen of the Night in previews now or is it opening or is it still in rehearsal? We're still in rehearsal process rehearsal. right now. Okay. Yeah, we open August 10th. Oh, August 10th, okay, so you mm -hmm. have a little time. To yeah, yeah. Out. Uh, we were, we both read the play. We obviously haven't seen it uh, and we're enchanted by it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how this play came to Dorset? It does seem like a play in many ways that's 
set on a camping trip among a, a father and son um, outside Houston, it seems like a kind of summer play in a way, right? Uh, is that part of the thinking of it? It's like a summer activity. I don't even know if it's set during the summer, but it's the kind of thing people are doing right now, camping and having to go on vacation with their relatives. I know speaking for myself, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, um, it's um, it kind of came about just, uh, I, I spoke with Dina and Jade here at the Dorset Theater Festival, and we were, we've been talking for a, quite a while, um, and then they were like, we want to do this outside. Would you be okay with that? <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, this is the play that would work outside. Um, and, you know, uh, they've built a stage. Um, we have some amazing designers that are kind of creating a, a cool kind of um, uh, camping outdoor environment using also the beautiful nature that's here in Vermont. So yeah. So they were and creating. I saw, yeah, go on, Jerry. Yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say I saw that it was developed during a virtual workshop. So I'm curious, like when you were originally developing the script, did you picture it a certain way indoors that you had to kind of shift as you moved it outdoors? Because it seems kind of perfect for an outdoor setting. <laughs> I mean, it just never crossed my mind. I've been working on this play for a few years. Um, it started in my grad at grad school, and in my head, I just thought all oh, the theater happens inside <laughs> so I just I never imagined that um it would be outside but I yeah I think it's like the perfect play to be outside I mean they are uh, it's the elements of the outdoors the animals the sounds all that kind of the lights um the lighting you know whether it's sunset or whether it's dusk it's, it's all important in the play so it just it just makes sense to do it outside. Um, yeah. I was going to ask if there's a lot of, uh, it's not a spoiler to say, there's a lot of uh, business in the play that's, uh, you know, pages that are, don't have dialogue where there's activity, people building a tent or fishing. And I wanted to just ask about how that's playing out in rehearsal. Like, is there a, you don't, you don't list times of how long it's supposed to go on, but I get the feeling that a lot of the meaning of the play is going to emerge in these scenes where the, where the two characters, father and son are not speaking, but are doing things together. And, and, and the subtext will emerge there. Is that, is that part of the, because you, I mean, and, and I guess my question would be, to what extent are you scripting all those moments? Are you finding those in the room? Um, yeah, those moments are really important to this play. Um, you know, there's a line in the stage directions that it takes the time it takes for them to build the fire or do different activities that you would do outdoors. And again, reflecting that, you know, we're gonna be sitting outdoors, there's woods behind us that this kind like camping um uh is really uh a rigorous task um so we've been finding in the room that um it's a, it's hard you know there's the equipment you have to have um you know we spent a while setting up tents learning how to set up tents um and you know the other kind of practical things you know how do you start a fire you have to have a fire starting kit what does it look like which one are you using um, so yeah, there's a, um, kind of reflection of, of the emotionality of the characters and, you know, okay, they've come to kind of, um, talk it out and discuss their relationship. So, you know, they're setting up the tents in the beginning of the play, kind of 
quiet and awkwardly that reflects, you know, their their relationship. So yeah. Yeah, no, that that, that I feel like there's a lot of potential there. Uh, they're almost setting up the context in their in which they're going to be having this. Um, I know you'll probably get asked this kind of question. Uh, I don't know a lot of your work, Travis. Obviously, but this is the one play. But how much of it comes from you? And have have you gone camping with your dad? Basically, is, is my, <laughs> is my, is my question. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. We went. We would go camping a lot when I was younger with my dad um actually near chicago um with me and my little sister and i remember we had disney themed tents and things like that so we must have liked it i don't remember too much about it now but um uh i i think i've been you know camping when i was a teenager with friends and stuff so a lot of the play is coming from from my experience of camping uh, especially for the younger character the son um and, you know, it, it's all kind of mixed up, you know, um, in there, but yeah. Um, and I wondered also about uh, the, the kind of, whether there were models you looked at for when you're writing this play, the, the sort of, either in your own life or in other plays where it's the kind of thing where the thing you want to say to the parent and you finally get the, you get the chance to say that big thing uh have the big confrontation or have them say the affirming words you've always wanted the parent you know them to say that seems to be what the play builds to again i don't want to give spoilers but you know it builds to moments like that for both characters i don't think it's just ty the younger son who needs to hear things from his dad the dad needs to hear things from him as well you mm -hmm. know to be affirmed in his his uh in, in, in his journey and where he's at um wondered if, if you had again not prying into your own personal life but just models from your own life or again other plays you had in mind where that's the structure where it builds to that sort of moment yeah i definitely think um i was thinking you know a lot about my relationship with my father um and so that definitely played a role into it um and i think that uh i, I mean i kind of like the question i started to play with was just um what would a conversation between two people from different generations, a son and father, um, you know, adding queerness in there, adding blackness and adding masculinity into the mix, how would they meet each other halfway um, if they're if they're starting from this far away, you know? Um, so that kind of was the basis question that I was looking at to write at writing the play. And then I also kind of modeled the play off of um, or uh, in contrast to these kinds of other um, narratives about Black um, fathers and sons, um, about Black queer sons. Um, so I kind of wanted to stay away from um, what we've seen and tried to, to give a more hopeful and I think, you know, part a realistic story um, that happens between you know fathers and queer sons and and, and parents and queer children uh, because there there are different uh, spectrums you know there there are the kind of stories that inc include trauma and things like that um, this story includes trauma too but <laughs> um, uh, and there's different kinds of conversations happening uh, um, across the world so I, I just wanted to kind of highlight that and I. I 
really appreciate what you said about like uh, how black fathers are, are depicted. I think that's such an important conversation in society about how how black men, especially black queer men and black fathers are depicted. And I think you do such a wonderful job. And I think part of that is the poetry and musicality of the script. So I know you have a poetry background. Can you talk a little bit about melding these themes with the kind of poetry you were hoping to evoke with it? Yeah, um, I studied poetry too um, in my MFA. Um, I've written a book of poetry. I really love poetry and um, poetry is about musicality and rhythm and sound. And so I think that melds into this play, not only with the dialogue, but I also tried to invoke that with the owl sounds or the other animal sounds or, or, or placements of when the stars are there or placements when these magical night flowers appear. Um, so, and when dialogue happened and when stage directions or action happened within the script as well. I wonder if you could talk about uh, your background and how you, did, did you start out with poetry and want to, and then move to playwriting? I, I know one of my favorite quotes about playwriting is, Joy Gregory said, a playwright is a poet who got lonely. And the idea being that you you can write all kinds of stuff by yourself, but you want to get in a room with people and have them say your words. Um, was that your journey or was it, were they both parallel at the same time, theater and poetry? Well, um, I definitely started with playwriting, um, with actually with acting first and uh, playwriting and grad school. And then um, in our grad program, we get to, you get to pick like a primary and a secondary. And my original secondary was obviously screenwriting because I was like, that makes the most sense. But when I kind of started exploring reading more poetry, reading more uh, modern poetry, um, I was like, oh, I also took the class and I just didn't really like it. I was like, screenwriting's hard. Um, and then I was like, poetry's a little more free flowing. It's a little bit more about emotionality and feeling and mood and tone. Um, and it was just an easy switch over. I mean, I just, and personally just loved it, but I think it fits, those two fit really well together. Um, yeah. I also wanted to ask about, I, I looked at your, you have a newsletter, uh, this is camp, which you keep up. Is, is that a, a, a side thing? This isn't your main, uh, your main gig. Oh yeah, this is just a little fun side. I, I want to practice, um, you know, everyone has a sub stack now and a newsletter, <laughs> which is very fun. And I read a lot of them, um, but I just wanted to practice a place where I was writing kind of, more essayic things um, with sentences, with full sentences. I mean, not that, you know, not poetry and, and, and dialogue with stuttering. I wanted to try to like create sentences <laughs> um, that are about pop culture. And I think, you know, there's just a joke that like everything is camp, but, or, you know, now like, okay, that that's just camp, it's camp. Um, so, I am a, just a bit making fun of it, but I am interested about um, like uh, an updated version of Notes on Camp by Sontag. So, yeah. Right, sure. Yeah, I know there's certainly a lot of dispute about this is Kim. No, that's not a dispute about what, what it- so This is kitsch. This is- yeah. Right, right. What, what's the fine gradations there, right? Anatomize those. Um, you also have a, a, a drag show. Do you do, do you do that often or that's just something that's in the past? Jazzy Mercado. 
Yeah, um, I did that in grad school and I performed okay. it around Austin. Um, well, actually, I am working with my dramaturg, Graham Schmidt, on a second kind of version of that. Um, and so, yeah, so hopefully I'll be back. I mean, drag makeup is really hard to do. Um, and the show's like, you know, it's a kind of a poetic monologue with songs in it. And so I can distract people with with pretty lines and um, songs uh, and not my makeup skills. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask also about you're based in Austin. Is that is that a theater scene that you, uh, you know, is, is that a scene where you've done a lot of work and, and feel like part of the Austin theater scene? I don't. It has a reputation for having a scene, but I don't know what it's. And that it's a scene that's flows with you know within without the music scene there. Like, uh, do you feel like that's a part of it? And you've you've done work there. Yeah, I think Austin um, definitely before our current pandemic situation. I think that um, it's very, uh, I, I think it has a pretty cool theater scene. There's not as many um, theatrical spaces um, being used, but people are being inventive with barns and and right music venues there and things like that and kind of blurring the lines of where we put shows, um, museums, uh, things like that. And I think it has a really like exploratory scene. So it's it's very, I mean, it's very Keep Austin weird, but it's also <laughs> a lot of people like figuring things out. There's lots of workshop productions there um, and a lot of kind of fun stuff. I mean, I did like a Home Alone parody in a warehouse where people like were just there was no you just stood there and there was beer and somebody pretended to be, you know, Home Alone. So it was great. <laughs> <laughs> And then you, you moved to New York, correct? How's so, that transition been? So I did move to New York. I moved to New York um, February 2020 with my bags. Um, I sold my car. Um, and then uh, something happened. Um, and then <laughs> we, I was in the house. I was just learning the subway. I was like, oh, cool. I can go to the MoMA on the weekend. This will be so fantastic. Um, and then I was stuck in the house for six months. Um, and then I moved back home and now I'm preparing again to uh, move to New York in September. So we'll uh, uh, try the second part, yeah. <laughs> so is, is the feeling that, that there's a, that feeling of pressure to, to move to New York if you're a playwright, that's, that's the place to be? I don't wanna frame it as pressure as a negative, mm. but is that kind of, this is the, that's the place? I say this is the place, I'm not there based there right now, but is, is that the feeling for career basically? Um, I think maybe a little bit, but I, I honestly, in this last year, then just thought, you know, I've been doing Zoom stuff, I've been doing digital readings, I've been writing things for other people to perform on online and streaming with friends. And you don't, I, I think not. I mean, I think that, you know, that we know now that you don't need to be in these major places to make really great work. Um, whether it be digital or just, you know, in person, but you don't need to live there. I think a little bit of it is that for me. And I also think that I just want to um, give uh, it a second try. You know, I didn't get the first try. So I want to go there and then be like, oh, just kidding. I hate this. And then I can move. But like, <laughs> I want to at least be able to hate it. <laughs> you hate it under the right terms, right? It's not yeah. fair to judge it under <laughs> pandemic terms, right? Yeah, I, I was also curious, you mentioned the digital work. I, 
I've done, I've seen a lot of digital work and written about a lot of digital work over the last few months. So I, I'm curious, like what your biggest takeaways from that work have been? Like, is this something you still want to experiment with moving forward? Is this something you're hoping you leave, can leave in the, in the past? Or where, where are you sitting with that work? I think that people are making such great stuff. I mean, you mentioned that live kind of comedy TV thing, and that's so brilliant. That's a brilliant idea. I am working on a project with my friend. We're twitching, um, doing the streaming on Twitch, uh, different things. We're going to watch TikToks, do different activities. He's going to do different things. It's kind of supposed to be like a Housewives-esque um journey just like kind of like a reality show of watching this person's life um and we've been working on that and it's really cool medium um you know we can pull in our um video friends our film friends we can pull in our art friends to have different backgrounds created um it's just a really it's collaborative thing and it's fun and entertaining and sometimes you want to sit in your house and watch something rather than go somewhere um and that option there is really cool i mean you know this american wife all this great stuff that was there um on the on the computer and i think we should you know take a little stock of it yeah yeah is there a twitch channel you want to plug i i am a an avid twitch watcher so i will certainly follow the twitch yeah it's pool boy zero zero um and that's pool boy is my friend and we're just following him around in his life and doing weird things on the internet it's going to be fun we've 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 been kind of writer room planning it with a few friends and it will, it'll be, i think it'll be fun yeah so it's it's you're thinking mostly scripted i i've watched a lot of twitch from improvisers so i've seen a lot of improv on twitch so are you thinking mostly scripted for this Oh, well, this project's going to be a little bit of half and half. We're going to do some kind of like, this is your line to hit. Um, we'll do some kinds of uh, overarching stories. And then we'll play producer like they do in reality shows and kind of create some drama there. Um, but I think it's a cool project because Twitch is, I mean, kind of, you can, you know, you can do your talk show, you can game and watch people and watch people um, play different video games. Um, and we're kind of making it into a, a, a slow burn reality show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of your own little TV channel. You can mm-hmm. kind of make it whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's so cool. Uh, are there any other platforms that, that you've been experimenting with? I know I just like to keep tabs on, on what people are working on. No, I mean, I, I really think that the technology behind you know, using Twitch, you can use OBS and you can use all this stuff where you can integrate other art forms in that are cool, like watching TikToks or inserting, you know, a well-produced video or a well-produced background um, while you're in your little box talking kind of is really effective to me, yeah. Yeah, and once you learn all the the technical requirements, there's a lot of creative freedom you can have Mm -hmm. in that. That's really cool. Could could Queen of the Night ever exist on Twitch? Is I guess my question. 
Oh, that would be fun. I think so. I mean, I think there's, <laughs> there could be like a live version where we just Blair Witch falling them in the woods in like a real campsite. That would be fun. That's exactly what I had in my mind. <laughs> that is the image that popped into my mind. Seeing people do the kind of, I, I don't want to say live stream because like they're all live, but that kind of on the ground, I'm going to go out in the world. It just seeing this acted out in the woods would be interesting so yeah i think that's so cool that there are those options that you can play with definitely i wanted to in terms of this new media do you feel like the energy because so much of it what it it coalesced because we had no other alternative and now that we're heading back into a rehearsal room and a stage do you, do you feel like there's a, a tension there or do you feel like there's going to still be this outlet you want to keep that there these other this other media I think so. I think we'll find, uh, I think I'm finding that some things live in that media mm -hmm. and also exploring like um, creating kind of little films, um, little like things you could post on Instagram, whether it be graphics um, or little videos or things that kind of I don't know, just our little expression bubbles. Um, mm -hmm. I really like doing that. Um, and I just think that, I mean, I hope that we we keep using the medium and, and finding new ways to kind of blend a theater with, with the technology we fortunately have to use, yeah. I wanna get back to the play real quickly. Can you tell me about the title? It's like, it invokes Mozart, the Queen of the Night, but it's just sort of a fun, a fun title, or does it have deeper meaning for you? Um, so Queen of the Night is like a nickname of the night flower, the this this um, oh, species of flowers called the Queen of the Night that okay. bloom in uh, in the evening. Um, right. So as the sun goes down, you can watch these great um, time lapse videos where you'll see them blooming. Um, there's yeah Mozart, and then there's. Um, a lovely Whitney Houston song called oh. Queen of the Night. And I think it's one. just like, it's supposed to be a little bit of a joke that um, we have this queer person who could be called a queen in the, in the, in the night. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Um, and, uh, can you tell me a little bit about, about the production and then the, the, the artists aren't listed on the, on the, the Dorset site and then what you've learned about your, your play of, uh, seen it on its feet in the room and like what, what you've you know oh I see how this works or this is a surprise yeah um I'm working with the director as Golden um and my dramaturg is Graham Schmidt and we've kind of we you know met before but now we're here in person with each other we can kind of do a lot of whispering um to each other and passing notes but you know we've we've made space to have note sessions we've they've made space for me to kind of stop and be like, actually, these are the new pages we're gonna do, or, or can we change this entrance or um, uh, just finding ways to shape the play, um, all three of us together. Um, our lovely actors, uh, Steven's played by Danny Johnson and Ty's played by Leland Fowler. Um, and they're both amazing actors and they're very inquisitive. Um, so it, they kind of helped to influence the play as well. And uh, I find that having as many smart people, inquisitive people in the room helps the play become a better play. 
Is this something yeah. you you ever saw yourself performing in? I think Ty is like a few years younger than you, maybe two years younger than you. Yeah, um, uh, maybe, but not really. I mean, I went to undergrad and I took a lot of acting classes. I did musicals. Even after I, I grad school, I, I performed in Antigonic by Ann Carson. We did a production there in Austin, which was very fun. But I, I, no, <laughs> I mean, if somebody, <laughs> um, if if Leland needs a day off, I could maybe do it, but <laughs> I would prefer not to. We'll just stick to the drag perf- drag performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's fair. You, so did you, 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 you pull away, is it, you need to pull away and look, and look at it, right? You don't want to be in it all the time. Is that part of it or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I could perform the play if I wanted to, but like having these actors here, I'm like, you know, you know, in, in my writer head, I'm like, that's not how the line goes. But then when you have some, when you have really smart and talented actors and directors, you're like, oh, that's how the line goes. Rather than being, you know, accusatory, you're like, oh, that's, that's how the line goes now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I once, I once had the occasion to interview Edward Albee, and I, this is not unknown to people that he, he told me that he always sees the play exactly everything that is just everything, how people look, where they are. He sees it all in his head. And then of course he lets it, he mostly let directors do what, do what they wanted with it. Um, he was notorious for sometimes, you know, uh, telling him, telling what he thought. But I wondered, do you see the whole play exactly as it, you know, like as if it's a movie in your head and you, you see every everything in a certain position or is it more voices? Uh, I think it's more voices. Um, what I see is like the fantasy of what I think the play is, um, which, you know, has been a really uh, actually, being here has been really insightful to those, to those fantasies because they're like, yeah, we, we got a, a real wooden stump. Like you said, they sit on a stump. And I was like, oh, I guess in my head, I just, you know, I envisioned them in the woods and I, now y'all are practically putting them in, you know, they're like, yeah, you said there's tents. So there's tents here and they have to set them up. And I was like, you know, I just, in my fancy, I'm like the tents pop up there and, you know, they act and they say lines and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they actually have to build all this stuff. I mean, there's, a, there's a, there's a, again, not a spoiler. There's, there's an owl in the script. Um, <laughs> And I wonder, do you have a trained owl, mechanical owl? I have to have to know these. Um, things. <laughs> I would love if we had, you know, an owl or a falconer. I don't know what they're called. Um, <laughs> come help, come train an owl for the production. But I think they, I mean, it, uh, they have ideas about how to make that happen, um, whether it be um, audio or an actual owl or a stuffed owl or, you know, some shadow play or something like that. Um, <laughs> You know the designers have really great ideas already for those things. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, you live it to the designers, right? Yeah, yeah. They're very smart and, and talented. Um, it, in terms of the, the one of the the themes of the play that comes through very strong, the, 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 Ty has an, a beautiful monologue laid on. I think when Stephen's asleep, he says a lot of these things because he feels safe to say them. Um, if I read it correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. And he talks about how dads can be wrong dads can be mean people don't care and then he realizes he's really just talking about masculinity and that there's a certain sort of just on the way i am that sort of men masculine men claim and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about 
Ty says he never felt like he had that kind of confidence in himself or had that kind of just to be who he is. I mean, do you feel like that's what masculinity means in the, to these characters, just being who they are? Um, I think it's, uh, it is a little bit of being who they are. I think it's also a little bit of um, just figuring out how to examine that and just in relation to other people, right, and to the world. Um, because, you know, we have a lot of, there's a lot of negative uh, things we can say about masculinity and how um, it has impacted lots of people in different ways and different, you know, in society in different ways. Um, but I think when you start to like really pick at it and, and, and uncover it as um, these two cis characters are trying to do, um, it starts to unfold a bit. I mean, you know, he's conflating, I guess, confidence with masculinity, but there is um, uh, models in the world that say that masculinity is confidence. Um, so he's trying to pick that apart and separate it and say, can I, I, can, I can be confident, I can go to the gym, but I don't have to put those two things together. Yeah, no, that's just that really spoke to me as, as a dad myself and who's raising two sons. I've, I've, that, that really spoke to me. Um, you also have, have, I think it's Ty also says something, I think he's saying this disparagingly, or, uh, the idea that happiness is a choice, that other people say that. And I just wanna ask you, do you think happiness is a choice? How, what are your think, feelings about that? <laughs> um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I wrote it, but <laughs> let me see. Um, I think that, um, there's different ways we experience joy and happiness. I think that um, some people are really good at um, uh, propping themselves up um, and creating a space where they can um, take a moment and and look at the joyful things in their lives um, and they can put, put that outward to other people. Um, I think also, you know, a little bit in this monologue too is about mental health and um, depression and anxiety and that some people can't do that and I think again you know people are thinking I think a lot of people think that you know well I can't stop this I can't ever be happy um, and you know there's medication and therapy and sometimes those things work for people and sometimes they don't um, but I, I think he's being a little flippant but uh, <laughs> but I think He's trying to, again, just examine what that means, happiness, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I got that strong. I, the, the, I would say the, the, the big turn, I felt like it was a big turn in the play, a big turn. Again, I'm not trying to give spoilers, but having just read it, there's a moment where they're doing something else and all of a sudden out of the blue, uh, Ty says, don't you hate being sad to his dad? I feel like that, I mean, I don't know if you felt that consciously as a moment where like, I'm just gonna put a gear shift here. Like suddenly this character is just gonna say that outright. There's also the moments where he sings to his dad in a sort of fun way that's a big tone shift. But I wonder, was that a moment you feel like, it feels like a pivot in the, sh in the show for me. Um, yeah, I think that's, um, they're, they're starting to break uh, um, down some of the barriers they have. There's another, there's like two big moments. There's a moment before that and then there's some, alcohol involved. Um, so I feel like they're breaking down some inhibitions and boundaries between them. And, you know, I, I like those kind of tonal shifts within plays and stories. Um, it's kind of the, 
Angel in America, the, you know, woman where she's like babbling and then she is very coherent um, and prophetic. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's just a moment of, of kind of changing the, the, the room, you know? Yeah, that really comes through. Um, Jared, did you want to ask, I was wondering about uh, larger sort of questions of the field since we're, that's on everyone's mind right now. All the questions about the field. <laughs> uh, but to start, like, I'd love to, to kind of keep it to you for a second, Travis. And like, how has the past year and a half been for you? Like we talked about you moving a little bit, but like as an artist, as a person, like how has the past year and a half been and what does it mean to you to like actually be able to be producing in person for this festival right now? Yeah, I think as an artist, it, it, it seemed really, I mean, it was very bleak at the beginning. I was, there was nothing happening. I was watching TikToks until 4 a.m. And then, you know, you figure out, okay, well, we're going to be here for a little bit and I need to make changes to my surroundings to my um, process and my routine, whether it be, you know, that involving working a job um, or working out or creating a space where you can um, really be as a, uh, effective as of an artist as possible. Um, so I, I did some of that, changing things around to make sure that I could um, be able to be writing. Um, the, my poetry book came out in, in June. So that was a good like kind of start. So, you know, um, doing some digital readings and things like that. And then I found by like July, um, I was very busy <laughs> because I had volunteered to do lots of readings and I had volunteered to, you know, and I had been working with, um, people and doing um, fellowships and uh, writers groups um, with other playwrights. And I found that was really, really helpful um, for continuing on throughout that uh, year. And then now being able to have this live produced play, which is my world premiere that I am very, um, it's kind of like, you know, you struggled for the last year and a half, and now there's a little reward for that. Um, while, you know, I was working and, and continue writing plays and poetry and going to these workshops and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's been such a turbulent time for the industry during all this as well. Uh, and I'm just curious, like, what's your outlook looking forward for the industry? Like, are you are you sitting here hopeful amidst, you know, all the push for anti-racism in the, in the industry and for more equity in the industry? Are you hopeful or do you, I guess the question I've asked a lot of people is, have you actually seen change and do you feel like you, you've experienced change in the industry? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm really interested in the appointment of these really um, great uh, POC artist at the helms of these theaters over the past maybe five months this has been happening um, in I think efforts to create equity um, but I haven't seen the change yet because you know we're, we've they've just been appointed these positions um, so I'm excited by that um, by you know putting these great artists at the top of the theater or giving you know giving them the kind of reign that they deserve um, as artists, I, I, I'm hopeful that that will then trickle down even more 
into other kinds of, you know, um, uh, ways, whether it be what the board looks like for theaters or what the other teams and marketing even, you know, in the theater are looking like. And then hopefully I, I hope that trickles down into that, you know, what, what, why not have a whole season of new plays? Why not have a whole season of people of color? Um, and I hope that, you know, that wave moves across the country so we can start challenging um, sub subscriber bases that are maybe not used to seeing certain things or people or stories. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm a little skeptical, to be honest, but I'm like mostly hopeful. I mean, we're seeing right now. I also think I, I would love for there to be like a little, I know that, you know, Broadway is a great place to point. There's a lot of money and it's right there in New York City and it's a big thing. Um, so, so I hope that, you know, we're looking at these like four or five plays by Black playwrights that are going to be on Broadway or off Broadway. Um, I hope that kind of like moves its way across the country into the regional theater scene and, and um, you know, other places. Um, and I hope, I hope there's a, a, a movement of new work, whether it be plays, musicals, drag shows, cabaret, whatever. Um, yeah, you know, there's some great plays that have been produced, uh, made obviously over the whole of the canon, but I'm really excited by, you know, I wanna see more voices, I wanna see, um more indigenous voices more voices that we we you know instead of having the one playwright i think maybe there could be 50 you know uh jeremy o'harris's around the entire world produ you know around this country producing work that is really viable to their communities you know um whether it be la or austin or Oklahoma City or you know whatever yeah yeah I feel like there's a, a scarcity mindset in the industry sometimes and I don't think there necessarily needs to be like we have a lot of artists and we have a lot of slots if we're being honest with ourselves so there's there's plenty of room to to filter in those new voices uh the last kind of like big question I'd love to ask you is as you as you look out at the the other regional theaters around the country and all these both the predominantly white institutions and those now being led by people of color and those that are um, dedicated to specific uh, specific uh, people of color, like how can you, how can they better serve you as an artist? Like as you look at these institutions, how could these institutions better serve you as a playwright and creative? Yeah, I think that these spaces could Again, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, initiatives for new work. There's, you know, usually some new York, new work festivals during the summer. There's there's spots for that. Um, I just, I, I, I wanna say there's a way that we can foster new work by uh, playwrights, radio artists, um, filmmakers uh, that we can, that may not be 100% monetary, um, Though I believe there's probably the money there for it, but um, 
in ways that we can support them in a kind of journey. Um, so whether it be, okay, you produce Queen of the Night, it's not, we produced Queen of the Night, it was great, or it was bad, now whatever, we'll just forget you, or, you know, we didn't make enough money, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of, we can, we, we did this play, okay, what's your next play? Um, do you need a space? Do you need people on video? Do you need um, kind of to just continue to foster these long um, term uh, relationships? Because sometimes like the first thing you send to theater is not, may not be good or may not be the right space or for, you know, their vibe or whatever. Um, but I think that that would be cool for, for new, new writers to just maybe have a little boost by these, these large places. And again, not being monetary, even just being like, Hey, we, we got you, or we think you're great. Like keep going. Um, because that could probably, that's, a, you know, I mean, that might take a little manpower, but probably not that much money. Right. I don't know. <laughs> It does seem like that they say that it's fields of based on relationships, and I feel like a lot of a lot of the artists that who have who've been established, they're established because they had the relationships, and because no matter whether their play was a success or not, they got another chance at that theater. They 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 have relation. They you know they've talked. To, people have talked a lot about how certain artists get the chance to fail many times um, and keep coming back. Yeah, and you know I think everyone deserves some room to. To fail, and that that the people who get a chance to do that, to, to to try things and fail, maybe not fail all the time and forever, but you know that's how people get good, and that's also how they build a new audience and build trust with new relationships. So, I think that's, uh, and we're seeing. I was the way you said before about there being sort of one. I think Jr. did a piece about about this a couple of years ago about about the sort of. The way the way American theater seemed to anoint one, one Latino or playwright, like, yeah. one black playwright, one this is the woman playwright for the you know. Mm -hmm. And then there's there's clearly even then when you wrote the piece, chair, there were so many, just a huge clamor of, of of talent that that you could just look everywhere. It was it was it was yeah. there. Um, and we need and to split up these prizes too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like in the same vein that these the, the same kind of people are getting these fellowships and prizes and. Well, actually, if we like spread the wealth or even if it's, again, not monetary, spreading this kind of attention we're paying to the, the you know, not just one or two or five great playwright, mm -hmm. new playwrights right now that are being done everywhere. How about if it's maybe 30 or 40 or 50 <laughs> people, you know? Well, we try our best to keep our eye on that and, and cover that, cover the festival. So I think so. I forget which one decided this past year just to give it out to many rather than one. Uh, it wasn't MacArthur, but it was Joy often gives out a lot. I forget. But yeah, some folks are, are getting that message, and hopefully, we'll, we'll help spread it. Um, Travis, it's been a total pleasure to spend this afternoon with yes. you. Uh, should let let viewers know if they're in Dorset, Vermont. Queen of the Night uh, begins performances August 10th through September 4th. I think they have that right. Yes. Um, should check it out, and hopefully, this we'll see this play. Uh, you know, make it around the country. Yes. Other outdoor, indoor venues, virtual venues, Twitch, where, wherever we can find it. <laughs> yes. yes, I hope so too. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure, Travis. Travis, uh, thank you. And JR and Charlone, thanks for producing. Um, it's another edition of Offscript. 
Uh, we'll be back uh, in August. I forget which Thursday, but it'll be a Thursday at one in August. Join us then. Bye now. <laughs>